0: whitney webb long-time followers of independent or alternative media are probably aware of a tendency among some commentators to combine their criticism of western politics and especially american politics with the belief that adversarial governments of the west mainly russia and china are essentially the good guys providing balance against the bad guys of the west while it can certainly look that way at times a key theme that i try to explore regularly in my work and on this podcast is about how the reality of the global power structure is based more in transnational networks that are less visible, but more powerful than and transcend the nation-state. These transnational networks are based not so much on loyalty to a particular cause or a particular nation, but on manipulating the flow of capital for the benefit of the individuals and entities who compose these networks. In other words, the real power brokers of the world manipulate our reality and our politics not to benefit a particular nation-state, but to enrich and empower themselves at the expense of the majority of the global population. And over the course of the COVID crisis, we have seen this reality become more obvious than ever before. Last year, I was joined by James Corbett to discuss how these networks, specifically a transnational oligarchy, play a key role in managing the U.S.-China relationship as well as in the rise of China as the top global economy. In this episode, my guests and I will be exploring how this plays out in Russia, and we will focus specifically on the COVID crisis and Russia's COVID policies as case studies for how the Russian government and Russian oligarchy appear to be all in for the rollout of everything from central bank digital currencies, vaccine passports, the so-called fourth industrial revolution, and other policies that lead to a bleak future of technocratic serfdom. Joining me today to explore these issues and discuss his insightful and often humorous reporting is Riley Wagaman. Riley is an American journalist based in Moscow, and he has previously worked for RT Press TV and Russia Insider. He currently writes about Russia with a special focus on COVID-related issues at his Substack, Edward Slavsquat, which you can find at edwardslavsquat.substack.com. Hey, Riley, thanks for joining me today. How are things where you are?
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's It's quite cold and wintry here in Russia, as you might expect, but things are otherwise okay.
0: <laughs> okay, well, that's good to hear. Well, as you've noted in your reporting, and as, as I'm sure many listening uh, have probably noticed as well, there's a lot of information circulating, it has been, throughout alternative media. Um, on most other COVID vaccines, uh, Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and so on, but there hasn't really been a lot of critical information or really much at all on Russia's Sputnik V vaccine, as well as those produced by China, uh, like Sinovac's Coronavac vaccine, which has been the most widely used where I live in Chile. Well, I think this may owe to language barrier issues, um, maybe a lack of China and Russia-based reporters looking to do this kind of work as well. Uh, there have been some outlets, as you've pointed out, that instead claim that any criticism um, of Russia's or China's vaccine is essentially due to racism or Orientalism or Russia-phobia um, or xenophobia, things like that. Um, but frankly, your recent work... Um, has covered numerous reasons, uh, numerous causes for concern about Sputnik V. And one of the striking things uh, I learned from your coverage is that like, um, just like Moderna and BioNTech, um, Sputnik's alleged developer, um, the Gamaleya Center, had never been able to make a successful vaccine until COVID. And they were also facing some major financial issues, or at least one of their uh, main investors uh, was right before COVID emerged. And I had recently covered in a series Moderna's pre- and post-COVID situation, uh, and my main takeaway from that research was that Moderna's COVID vaccine is basically a giant grift, um, one that threatens public health, of course, in a, in a big way, given the mandate situation and, and so on. And you argue that the Gamalaya Center's Sputnik V vaccine is essentially the same in this regard. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about the Gamalaya Center? why you think it's odd that they were chosen to develop Russia's state-backed COVID vaccine and key points that concern you about it.
1: Yeah, uh, so probably people are familiar with the sort of approved Russian government approved narrative, which is basically uh, the way that Sputnik V was developed so quickly and recall that it was uh, the first registered the world's first registered vaccine, that's what they call it, even though the Chinese had a, had one that they were messing with earlier, but whatever. Uh, the way that they the way that they explained that this was possible, just rolled out something like six months uh, from announcement to registration, was that they claimed that the Gamalaya Center had this, had developed, had successfully developed this viral vector platform. And it was just sitting on a shelf, and they just, you know, dusted it off, did their little thing, you know for COVID. And voila, you have a new, this new amazing, safe and effective vaccine that's, that's ready for, uh, you know, mass inoculation. The problem with this narrative, well, there's many, many problems with it. But one of the most obvious problems with this narrative is that this platform that they claim to have developed has never, it's totally unproven. It is, they have this platform, this viral vector uh, you know this adenovirus viral vector platform has never actually been used to create a vaccine that has actually gone to market. And uh, interestingly enough, a lot of critics of Sputnik V claim that the V actually is, stands for five, like a Roman numeral, because Gamalaya's four previous vaccines all failed; they never they never went anywhere. Uh, and it's, so it's it's quite startling that this reality is never discussed. And like you mentioned with Moderna, I mean, Gamalaya doesn't really have a good reputation before before the rollout of Sputnik V. Interestingly enough, uh, what Gamalaya does have, Gamalaya by the way is basically controlled by the Russian health ministry, is that it has very close connections to Sort of the most infamous Russian oligarch, uh, this guy, Anatoly Chubias, who teamed up with Gamaleya in, I believe, 2008 or 9, And it was part of this initiative that Chubias had. He was put in charge of this state-owned company called Rusnano. And this state-owned corporation was supposed to develop nanotechnology for the Russian government. They never developed anything. It was a huge scam. And in fact, one of the first vaccines that Rusnano developed in partnership with Gamaleya ended up uh, resulted in an embezzlement scandal. So that's the first viral vector platform fun. result. Yeah, really fun, right? That sounds healthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, safe and effective. And uh, it's just a, it's just an amazing history if you go through it. I mean, I'll give you one, probably the most famous example that they always point to. Ironically, is they claim that Gamaleya developed this uh, viral vector-based vaccine for Ebola. And if you go on Sputnik's website, they praise this vaccine, this amazing viral vector Ebola vaccine. The problem with this vaccine is that it was it was tested on in Guinea, right after Guinea had successfully eradicated Ebola. There was this outbreak between 2000. 14 to 2016, and so right after Ebola had been eradicated, Gamaleya goes in, tests this, vac- tests this vaccine on a few thousand uh, trial subjects, I think 2,000 to be exact, and then we just never hear from it again. It's just shelved. They never ask for approval, emergency approval from the WHO. It's only approved, it only gets emergency approval from the Russian health ministry, which by the way operates the Gamaleya Center. And it's a really interesting because recently one of the developers for Sputnik 5, one of the scientists behind it, was interviewed by Forbes. And they said, look, uh, you guys developed this vaccine, this Ebola vaccine that you always talk about, but has it actually even been used? Has it even like been used outside of Russia? And she, this scientist lady is like, well... No, it hasn't. It hasn't been registered outside of Russia. But it's just because there's never been an opportunity to use it, which is actually totally false, because Guinea had an Ebola outbreak in February 2021, and there was an emergency vaccination program. And guess which vaccine wasn't involved? You know, the Gamalaya magic Ebola vaccine, which is repeatedly cited by the Russian government as proof of, you know, Gamaleya's amazing accomplishments in in vaccine technology. Anyway, it it goes on and on. I mean, we're talking about a a place, this uh, center, the Gamaleya Center, it doesn't even have, there was recently uh, photos published of it. And so it's one of these typical Russian operations where the administration building is all, uh, you know, beautifully, uh, you know, redesigned and, uh, you know, nice new coat of paint. And then the other parts, the alleged vaccine building or one of the research buildings that a journalist snuck into, it looks like it was, hasn't been touched since 1942. It's like, looks like it's bombed out, you know, and, and apparently uh, these, this place doesn't even have an elevator. And there's just this whole, it's just, it's just so, bizarre well that the it's gamalea weird because sensor, they've
0: gotten all this sorry uh it, it's weird because they've gotten all of this money right because of their uh, to develop the sputnik v vaccine but they, they didn't really right. go into the uh, vaccine production uh, center of gamalea uh, as you mentioned in in some of those uh, pictures you're alluding to of uh, i don't know if i'd say bombed out but it definitely doesn't look like a place i'd like to visit <laughs> it's a quite dark and dingy looking like a janitor's closet but expanded into a, a whole building yeah <laughs> instead yeah. of just a closet yeah exactly yeah so um that what i wanted to point out and you mentioned this in one of your articles uh, for people listening is that um you noted that it's odd that this was chosen not just for the reasons uh, that you've already laid out but also because russia um in in Moscow and in other places, has uh, institutes that develop have developed uh, successful vaccines with a uh, you know um, a really good track record and really good international reputation that were not chosen to develop the vaccine. Instead, it was this one with no record of success, um, ties to this questionable oligarch figure, uh, and as you as you mentioned, um, his partnerships uh, or I guess the partnerships he sort of blessed between Gamaleya and. And Russ Nano that he is uh, running, I guess, um, have been you know tied to financial uh, uh, fuckery for lack of a better <laughs> a better word, so you know it's it's quite um odd that it would go to them, right yeah, absolutely and I mean this
1: what's funny too, of course, about uh, Russ Nano is well, it's not funny for you know the investors, but I mean it's basically on the basically was on the verge of bankruptcy, and Chubias left. Rusinano, I, I believe in 2000, in 2020, so right around, right around the time, even when they started developing Sputnik Five, he basically bailed because Rusinano was just draining. I mean, it was a huge scandal. And now uh, Tobias is the head; he's the special envoy for like sustainability for Russia. And he like this guy's a, a super creep. And he cites he recently cited Bill Gates as this like great visionary for you know climate change, activism and things like this, like Bill Gates is leading the revolution of sustainability. That's what Chubais is doing now.
0: The the climate change stuff Bill Gates is leading, I've talked about uh, this. Well, it's also Mike Bloomberg, a uh, couple billionaires and um, the central bankers. I mean, it's a, basically a giant financial scam. So it's something that someone like uh, Chubais would probably be very interested in uh, exactly. based He's on really uh, his at, background. <laughs> He's good at finding yeah. scams. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's good. Well, one thing that you brought up, um, uh, one thing that you brought up that I found really, uh, just nuts, um, and I, ha- I, I'm really surprised I didn't hear about this, um, before, is that apparently, you know, Sputnik V, um, is, is, you know, the Russian vaccine, you would, we assume, you know, that it was developed, not just developed in Russia, but is also produced there, but apparently, um, Gamaleya, it isn't producing the vaccine instead they're uh buying a, a massive amount of it uh, of of the doses of the vaccine they ostensibly produce and i guess people assume uh that they they were tied to manufacturing but instead it's coming from an uh a foreign supplier uh, apparently foreign anyway and uh, and it's not named in government contracts can you uh, discuss that and its implications a little bit
1: yeah so There are several sort of approved manufacturers of Sputnik V in Russia, and one of them is the Gamaleya Center. So Gamaleya is supposed to be manufacturing its own, for lack of a better term, brand. And what's really interesting is that instead of manufacturing it, they're buying doses from an unnamed third party and just putting their name on it and selling it to, you know... uh, the regions or wherever these doses are going. So they're basically acting as a middleman uh, and purchasing their own, the doses of their own drug from an unnamed third party. Now it could, it, could, it could be, to be fair, it could be one of the other manufacturers and they just don't wanna, it could just be some sort of basic, you know, grift going on, something like this. But who knows? And some of these, some of these contracts are written in US dollars, which is quite interesting. So yeah, well, uh, if
0: it was a Russian domestic manufacturer, right, it would not make a lot of sense to use dollars for the contract. It would make sense to keep it in the same currency as the people paying it, right? So um, that implies it's a a foreign supplier, which I found. Yeah, so
1: it's it's definitely it's super it's super sketchy. It's super sketchy, and what makes it more sketchy is that this is another aspect of Sputnik V, which nobody, well, very few people talk about, or and I think now people are are very aware of which is that uh the Russian government has partnered with big pharma during the whole from since day 1 basically uh to get Sputnik V off the ground specifically i mean they've been working with Pfizer and Moderna but specifically they signed this uh memorandum of cooperation with AstraZeneca and What's interesting is that Alexander Ginsberg, the, dir- the director of the Gamaleya Center, basically just says that Sputnik V has no significant differences from AstraZeneca's shot.
0: Is that because of the adenovirus vector? Right. Uh, because that's okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So I guess that the the technical difference is that AstraZeneca uses like a monkey ad- virus or something. Yeah, you know, a chimpanzee adenovirus. Material. Yeah. Right. And then Sputnik Five uses human adenoviruses. That's what they claim. But what's really str- what's really interesting is that right at the beginning of this whole process. So we're talking about uh, in I'm trying to remember now. It must have been June or July 2020. Uh, the Russian Direct Investment Fund, which is the Russia's sort of uh, like government run investment fund they and and sorry and funds is the main financial behind sputnik five invested in this company called r farm and r farm has contracts with AstraZeneca to produce AstraZeneca in Russia and R Farm also produces Sputnik V and they're both produced and manufactured in Russia and in December of 2020 russia signed this cooperation agreement where they talked about you know combining scientific investments towards a common goal it was this huge thing and even putin sort of hailed this as this amazing uh you know agreement for cooperation towards protecting you know global health and so forth and you you if you look at at this relationship it's so bizarre and you even have you can find these Reuters reports talking about how the Russians turned to AstraZeneca for all sorts of logistical issues like basically you know how to mass produce Sputnik V and it's just it's just very strange how incestuous it is and you never you never really hear about how closely uh the Russian government is actually working with allegedly their competitors and for example, another another example of this is in August, last August, so August 2021, in Argentina, they administered Sputnik V as the first dose, and then they had a shortage problem. They ran out of the Russian shot. So they it started administering Moderna as the second dose. And the Russian government, or sorry, the Argentine government said this was due to supply shortages. But then... The Russians came in, the head of the Russian Direct Investment Fund gives this quote saying, oh no, this was always our idea. We always wanted to mix Sputnik V with, with AstraZeneca or Moderna or Pfizer. This was always our intention. We, we believe that this, this will provide more protection than just two doses of Sputnik. We, we are totally 100% endorse mixing our vaccine with big pharma shots. And it's just it's quite extraordinary, and so I really feel like this whole vaccine war narrative really lacks nuance and is sort of just sort of made for TV. And it's clear that all these guys are just you know they're they're cool with it.
0: Yeah, so that's really interesting to me that it was you know always the plan to combine uh, Sputnik V with the other COVID vaccines. This whole mix and match thing, which obviously um, in a sane world, you know the the mixing and matching would be like tested to see if you know it. it I don't know, over a longer period uh, to see what happens. But, you know, it's just like, you know, they, they've essentially said also in Chile, too, not just in Argentina. And I think in some other countries, uh, too, they they essentially like promote mixing and matching is like better.
1: Yeah. Or, or yeah.
0: good. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think um, it's odd, too, that um, there's essentially this, this narrative that you've, you know, uh, referred to. Um, that essentially the Sputnik V is like the Russian government vaccine. It's seen, it's, it's portrayed at least in uh, English speaking alt media or independent media essentially as being like a public sector, uh, venture, not really tied to big pharma, um, in a sort of framed as, um, or at least Western big pharma. Yeah. And a sort of framed as, uh, you know, uh, superior in that sense for the people that, um, you know, uh, tend to view sort of, uh, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, sort of these adversar- adversarial governments to the west as as the good guys, and um, and, you know, it's just sort of uh, n- not really standing up so much with um, um, the reality of the situation. And one of the uh, other people, so you mentioned that the biggest um, funders is this RDIF investment fund of uh, the Russian government, right? Right. So uh uh, but you've also noted that uh Spurbank, which is <laughs> Russia's largest bank, which I guess also is uh um I thought it was a private bank, but I guess it's essentially owned by the Russian state now to some uh degree that they were also intimately um involved with the um rollout um of Sputnik v in a lot of ways, and that's really significant um as we can get into uh in a little bit um uh, for people that uh re- remember my reporting on cyber polygon, the world economic Forum. Uh, Exercise Spurbank, uh, a a subsidiary of theirs, was the co-host of that. Um, And the uh, head of Spurbank, uh, Herman Graff, is on the board of trustees of the World Economic Forum and very involved with a lot of Uh, interesting agendas. And not only does Spurbank have an interesting uh, connection to Sputnik V and its development and its uh, subsequent promotion and distribution, oddly, Mm -hmm. um, but it's also um, uh, Graf, Herman Graf, however you say it. um, He himself is also pretty uh, intimately tied up with all of this. Could you uh,
1: go over that uh, briefly? Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's spooky. It's super spooky. So basically, what happened was in February 2020, February 2020. So, we're talking about really a full month before COVID even really became a thing in Russia. And uh, Herman Greff spoke to the media and he said, So, I just want to let everyone know that uh, my bank, Bear Bank, is really concerned about what's happening with coronavirus and so we have these two initiatives that we're heading the first one is that we want to rapidly develop facial recognition technology that works on people who are wearing masks so for some reason this was his this was a top priority uh, that'll
0: stop coronavirus Exactly. <laughs> And
1: the second thing he says is, we want to. We're offering grants. We're offering money to scientific institutions in Russia to develop drugs to fight coronavirus. And so, within a few weeks, uh, Gref comes out basically, and or it's announced that uh, the Gamaleya Center is now working on actually a few different a few different sort of Russian uh, federal agencies and, and institutions start working on this vaccine. Now what's really interesting is that Graf decided apparently to put all his chips on Gamaleya. And not only did Spare Bunk fund, they basically put in seed money or whatever you want to call it, basically an initial investment into Sputnik V's alleged development. Uh, they did that, but also Gref later comes out and claims that he, was, he, he received the vaccine in April 2020, which would mean that he would be one of the first people in the world to get this vaccine. For example, phase one trials, which were extremely small, we're talking about a few dozen people, didn't begin until the second half of June of that year so he was he was getting he allegedly got the vaccine several months before phase one trials even started uh, Another really bizarre thing about draft's connection to this is that in so in May of two thousand twenty sparebank creates a subsidiary and uh a subsidiary company and which is ch- given the specific job of creating offering uh, creates a project office to support the production of this vaccine, which later becomes Sputnik V. So Spare is now in charge of production support. Greff also later says in an interview that he helped with technology transfer involved with the vaccine. And this company that he creates, uh, Inno Technologies, Immunotechnology, sorry, receives uh, exclusive rights to supply Sputnik V. The first 9 million doses of Sputnik V were distributed by spare punk. And if they got this deal through... Oh, man. The bankers
0: a... just want us to be healthy, Riley. It's, it's I mean... Literally, it's
1: literally a banker's shot, which makes me... It's It always makes me laugh when people are like, oh, yes, but Nick V, it's, like, so safe and effective and different from the big pharma clot shots. It's literally a banker's shot. Like, in the most... It'd be like if J.P. Morgan, you know, like, got the contract to distribute covid vaccines. It's so weird. Oh, and by the way, Heron Greff is on the International Council of JP Morgan. So there you go.
0: <laughs> oh, um, fun. Yeah. Well, for people listening so they have an idea of of like how this Greff guy thinks. Uh, yeah. I think it was a 2012 panel that you quoted that that you uh included um in one of your um Articles on Spurbank um, and basically people were talking about um, it was a I guess a World Economic Forum meeting a, a panel discussion on it was called way way the way out from the management dead end wisdom of the crowd or the authoritarian genius question mark and. Apparently, people uh, on the panel had been talking about, you know, uh, cliche, I guess, stuff that's cliche now, sort of, from from these types, things like crowdsourcing the future and whatnot. And then he intervenes and he says, quote, You are saying terrible things. You are proposing to transfer power into the hands of the population. If each person can participate directly in management, then what are we managing? And then he goes on to say... Uh, people don't want to be manipulated when they have knowledge. What does it mean to remove the veil from the eyes of millions of people and make them self-sufficient? How do you manage them? Any mass control implies an element of manipulation. Huh. So, uh, you know, this is just a, a technocrat guy that doesn't want you to know anything because he's a better manager of your life than you are. Um, <laughs> I guess that's what he thinks. Um, but you know, it. What's really crazy here is, um, it. I, I've talked about a lot of times in in some past interviews, um, how basically, uh, the the vaccine passport system or the QR code system, which I guess was going to be sort of how that played out, um, or was the plan for it to play out um in Russia and all of that is a segue to this digital ID agenda that's been promoted by the UN for a long time or the public private partnership ID twenty twenty uh and also the World Economic Forum. And that Spurbank um is really leading sort of on that on that front in the development of that sort of ecosystem, as it were uh, which is why the that particular bank uh, – and you can talk uh, – I'd love uh, love it if you could talk about this a little later, um, about how they see themselves not just as a bank but as a universe of services, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and all of this stuff because they're basically trying to be that, uh, you know, digital ID, um, you know, gateway to literally every uh, service you require all under the one roof of Spurbank, having it be sort of like centrally – extremely centrally um, – uh, controlled. Um, but basically, you know, this guy is, uh, um, you know, the fact that he's so involved with, with the WEF and, and all of that stuff and digital IDs, facial recognition and, and all of this stuff on a, in a massive way, uh, in a lot of these fourth industrial revolution, um, sort of technologies. And also in, in the vaccine, I think is, um, is pretty telling, uh, since the vaccine sort of being used to justify the imposition of a lot of these, uh, sort of technocratic and and tech-powered um you know control systems um and the fact that he you know uh <laughs> has a quote like that where you can literally just watch those words come out of his mouth i think is uh ah, it's a it's a great case study for stuff that's going on uh in other parts of the world that have gotten a lot of attention by alternative media uh you know uh but uh, n- not this this has not so much uh which is a little odd too considering, you know, Cyber Polygon did. Um, which of course is the World Economic Forum's um massive crippling cyber attack simulation they've been doing for um a couple years now. That's co hosted between the World Economic Forum and in Russia. Essentially, uh the Russian Prime Minister um you know, gave the the keynote speech, I think, to the last one. Uh Herman Greff uh participates in that. I think uh he was on a panel with Tony Blair this <laughs> this last time. Yep. That's that's fun. That sounds yep. like um a room I'd I'd love to be in. Um two really crazy people that love digital IDs. Um but man, uh th- that's a little unsettling. So there's a couple different ways we could uh we could we could go now, Riley. So um uh, I, I guess before we get, uh, I, I'd like to come back to Gref and, and Spurbank and stuff in a little bit because you've done some other articles on their sort of biometric uh, creepiness and how they're uh, targeting uh, children. But there's also some other World Economic Forum related figures that are pretty intimately tied to the Sputnik V vaccine um, as well. Besides Gref, so um, I don't uh, would you mind spending a little uh, a little bit of time uh, going over those as well? Uh, one of the Really curious things about Sputnik
1: V is that it really sort of is the it's a perfect example of if you're looking for this connection between the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset and how it connects I think quite obviously to this you know global uh, you know vaccine rollout that's basically being used to peddle you know QR codes what I like to call cattle tags. Sputnik V is the most obvious culprit here. It ha- the ties that Sputnik, the people behind Sputnik V have to the World Economic Forum are so direct and obvious that it would undoubtedly be like the prime suspect if you're looking for some sort of World Economic Forum vaccine connection. So we talked about Gref, who is a Board of Trustees member, Member of the Board of Trustees of the World Economic Forum. Then there's this guy Kirill Dmitriev, who uh, runs the Russia Direct Investment Fund, which we mentioned earlier. Russia, the Russian government investment fund, and uh, he, this R R D I F funds, is basically the main financer behind Sputnik V. Now, Dmitriev is a really interesting guy. First of all, he got his start. He's a Harvard-educated, ex Goldman Sachs banker who also who also worked for McKinsey and Company. Ooh. So these are these are you know really patriotic Russian firms, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, and oh, yeah, he was a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader in two thousand nine. Mm. So I'm sure that everybody is familiar with this Young Global Leader Forum. And I think recently there's been this video floating around of Schwab bragging about. I think it's not new, but maybe a year or two ago, bragging about how all of his his stable of young global leaders have infiltrated, you know, all corners of the world that are now guiding, you know, the globe towards penetrated cabinets. Bright...
0: I think in in yes, government, penetrated is the verb.
1: Yes, that. penetrated. Oh, so gross! Hearing that man say it's, that it's word, it's very but...
0: gross. the um, <laughs> i, I so, mean i just find schwab yeah. pretty gross in general <laughs> uh he's but maybe a that's just me
1: villain. i feel like he's a troll i feel like they chose him specifically
0: just to troll us because he's
1: some something from a film
0: uh well you know people like yeah. schwab and, and and zuckerberg i i it's hard to look at them and be like why would they roll out these idiots to be their spokespeople for it but these people also have like massive egos and they've you know invested so much time, like, in their, in their specific, in the specific part of their little, uh, of their agendas and and organizations and stuff that they feel like they need to be the face of it, you know? I think it's ultimately an, an ego thing, and sure. they're so disconnected from, like, how regular people are that they just don't realize how, like, clownish, um, they appear <laughs> to everyone. Um, maybe that's just, uh, may- maybe not, though. I mean, maybe, um... <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's another reason for it, but they definitely are pretty cartoony. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just to recap, so we got Greff, who, board
1: trustees member, World Economic Forum, involved in funding Sputnik V, technology transfer, gets the exclusive rights to uh, uh, distribute it. Apparently, uh, was one of the first people in the world to be injected with Sputnik V, allegedly. Etc. Etc. Then you have Kirill Dmitriev, who is heads. This is the CEO of the main financier behind uh, Sputnik V. Then, of course, you have uh, Mishustin, who you mentioned earlier, who was in CyberPolygon. and, and Mishustin. I mean, the, yeah, the prime minister. Aside from mm-hmm. just being the prime minister, who inevitably has some sort of involvement here, was is credited with signing that. Alleged secret order that gave uh, Spare Bank exclusive rights to uh, distributing Sputnik V, the first, first nine, nine million doses, as I understand it. And then there's the guy that nobody likes to talk about, but we need to talk about him. Uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, actually gave an address in January 2021 uh, at the World Economic Forum. And that was when they were discussing the Great Reset. That was like the topic, you know, they were talking about. It was a it was a virtual, uh, you know, meeting, I guess. And so, Putin uses this really important speech to talk about how he would like to see more COVID testing all over the world. The you know, uh, he wants to see more vaccinations, and he basically gives this sort of very Putin esque spiel. That's basically build back better. He, he says uh, global and national economies have been obliterated by the pandemic. We need to ensure that there's long-term recovery you know, and uh, make sure that we overcome social imbalances. And the way that we're going to do this is we're going to rely on state budgets and central banks. They will play a key role. So here's, here's Putin, who is, is very often worshipped in the alt media as this, you know, guy who's about to, you know, liquidate the fractional, fractional reserve banking system or whatever, you know, like destroy fiat and return to the gold standard and all this stuff. And here's Putin speaking. Yeah, that's, that's not what's happening. <laughs> not what's happening. He's, saying, <laughs> he's speaking to Klaus Schwab at, uh, you know, virtual Davos summit about the Great Reset and saying, we should build back better with central banks.
0: Yeah, let's let's give let's you know let the um now that everything's been you know the economy's been been totaled essentially let's uh, hand it all over to the central bankers to build it back better. That's exactly. great. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's uh obviously really troubling, but essentially you know pretty much every government <laughs> is doing the CBDC thing now. Uh, even Iran, which is uh, often seen as sort of out of this uh, club, I guess you could say. Uh, that the WeF oversees, you know, they're uh, even doing the whole uh, exploratory CBDC. Or for those that don't know, as uh, central bank digital currency, uh, you know, testing and and all of that. Um, very unsettling uh, for those that uh, haven't listened to my episode on. And CBDCs with uh, John Titus, I would encourage you to go back and do so because essentially it's, um, you know, a, a giant control system. It's not really a monetary system or a financial system. It's a, a control system masquerading as a financial system um, is essentially what that is. Um, and so essentially what we're seeing here and what you've laid out in the Russian case is that this is uh, very clearly being set up uh, domestically. And if you actually bothered to look at it, it's a, a very advanced uh, in Russia uh so far, uh largely thanks to Spurbank, which has their Spur coin, I guess, which isn't necessarily the digital uh ruble, right? But it'll be interacting with that and, you know, is is going to be a big time uh digital currency uh within Russia once this gets rolling. And of course you have um this uh we can talk about this later too this uh all this stuff about going on about uh, Ukraine right now and how Biden may uh, drop Russia from the SWIFT system. Um, you know, that, of course, gives Russia a big opportunity to push this uh, financial agenda uh, even further by saying, oh, we've been cut out of the SWIFT system, time to go to the digital currency system uh, that doesn't utilize SWIFT. Um, and, um, you know, digital ruble, the spur coin that'll, uh, be essentially foisted upon all, all Russians, uh, and it looks like a case of the West, you know, uh, battering Russia in, in, in Russia saying, well, here, look how resilient we are. We have, uh, you know, these digital currencies to fight back against U.S. sanctions. But if you, you know, look at the bigger picture here, I mean, the the U.S. is also advancing towards, uh, CBDCs. It's a central banker, um, plan (laughs) on a global scale. So, you know, it sort of looks like it's an adversarial, uh, agenda perhaps, but really it's, um, you know, it's, it's, they're all going to the same place at the end of the day, and, uh, it's, uh, definitely unsettling, especially, uh, it should be anyway for, uh, people living in Russia and, uh, people, uh, that oppose totalitarian <laughs> agendas. Um, and, and one thing I, I wanted to add, um, uh, why, why you were talking to is uh, why the, these ties uh, between uh, Sputnik V and the World Economic Forum are so important. And that is because the World Economic Forum and top people there, including Schwab, um, have openly admitted, you can find this pretty easily, um, that the COVID-19 vaccine rollout is foundational for the rollout of the fourth industrial revolution. Which again is a term that gets thrown around a lot now, but it's also a term that, not unlike the Great Reset, was uh, coined uh, by Klaus Schwab, who wrote the book on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And he is uh, Schwab essentially describes it as the digitalization of everything, but especially the economy and emerging of the physical and digital realms, uh, with a focus on artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, replacing human workers in a variety. Uh, of ways, but also, you know, having them replace human interaction, you know, things like the metaverse and stuff coming up in there. Um, and so um, that's, I mean, everything we've just uh, talked about in this last little uh, uh, bit here is is essentially proving that, you know, that, that Russia is definitely um, uh, a good case study for exploring uh, why that COVID-19 vaccine rollout is so uh, foundational. Um, and, and moving along from that, I think now might be a, um, uh, a good time uh to talk about a uh, spur bank and some of this biometric stuff um that you um have explored in, in some of your more uh recent articles um if you'd like to go into that
1: yeah so very tellingly in september two thousand twenty late september two thousand twenty greff comes out and he has this big announcement he's like we're not spare bank anymore we're not we're not b we're more than just a bank. We're just spare and we're this we're this universe of <laughs> services. It's a universe of services to uh, what is it? Oh, and they're they're he's like this will help us accomplish our motto, which is spare always there for you, and so he following has,
0: you breathing down your neck, you. yeah.
1: And so spare has this huge ecosystem. It's like Amazon, sort of, or I, I don't even yeah. know. They have like spare markets, spare health, spare ID, spare food, spare sound, spare AI. And what they're really involved with, I mean, they're involved with everything now. But one of the uh, most alarming developments that, that has occurred over the last year or so in Russia is that Spare has been very active in rolling out um, biometric like solutions—that's what they call them, uh, specific quote unquote, quote unquote yeah. solutions for schools for school children in Russia, and uh, it's not—I don't think it's just Spare that's doing it, but they're one of the main drivers behind this. And uh, for example, there are these videos of these distressed mothers who like walk into you know the entryway of their their child's school. Find that overnight they had installed these biometric ID turnstiles, you know, like in the entryway of their school. Like, what just happened? Like, where, where did this come from? Why did they tell us anything about this? Uh, the reality is that Russia, for several years, going back to 2019, has been open about how they want to basically tag all the children in the country. And the idea is, I think by the end of 2024, if I remember correctly, uh, they want all schools in Russia to be you, you enter and exit by giving some sort of, you know, biometric identification. And in Moscow, they plan on having this system throughout the city for schools by the end of this year. And it's already being rolled out in, in both in Moscow region and across uh, Russia. And spare has even been working testing systems where like you pay for your school lunch by giving a thumbprint like things like this. And so what you have to realize is, you know, people are rightfully really nervous about uh, the introduction of QR codes in Russia, which is a whole topic. But the reality is that they're already you know, they're getting at you from so many different angles and they're especially targeting the younger generation, the children. Yeah. And I think that it's obvious that they see this as the the easiest way to to make this transformation happen, you know, like if you just get them when they're young, you know, you tag them, they get the, bi- bi- you know, biometric ID, and you this normalize is it, normalize it them more easily. Age, yeah, because otherwise, you know, someone is, you know, the older generation is like, No, I don't want to do this, this is cre- creepy. But kids, you know, you can get them when they're young. So it's, it's very disturbing. And it's, 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 It's frightening. And you can go to these internet, uh, Russian internet forums and listen to these uh, Russian parents talk about how, you know, their kids are basically being tagged without their knowledge. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary.
0: So you brought up the COVID QR system, uh, and it seems like there was a lot of um, public pushback from that within Russia. And that was sort of going to be like the planned, uh, um, I guess, vaccine passport system. Um, implemented in in post-COVID Russia, but uh, it seems like uh, not only was it uh, really unpopular with the public, it seems like it's actually been uh, sacked, apparently, that particular initiative. Um, So uh, would you mind talking about what that system was, who promoted it, why it was so unpopular, um, and why uh, you think that perhaps uh, the victory um "quote unquote victory of getting that particular code scrapped was a a sneaky fake out so that biometrics could sort of come back in the the back door.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's confusing because in Russia they still have systems regional QR code systems. So depending on the region you live in, uh you may have you may not have any sort of interaction with QR codes or they might be part of your daily life. So a good example of this is uh, I'm in Moscow. QR codes really aren't widely used. They're, you need them for museums and I believe like large events, like concerts and stuff like that. If you go to Saint Petersburg, they're ubiquitous. You need them to go to a restaurant. You need them to go to a shopping center. Basically, unless you're going to buy groceries or to a pharmacy, that you know that's your only out at this point. Uh, enforcement also varies. So there's QR codes at the regional level. What happened was that. Uh, at the federal level, national level, uh, the State Duma wanted to introduce a national QR code system, wh- which would basically just make a uniform system. Everybody has the same rules. Uh, which, for a time, also included transportation. So that would have been that would have been a big one. And also, obviously, enforcement would probably be more standardized. So that was the original plan, going back to mid December, and this uh, bill. Received tremendous pushback. Like state Duma deputies, you know, sort of your local, your legislators here in Russia, were just bombarded, you know, on, on social media with all these negative comments. There was all sorts of things, petitions and videos, and even some actual protests against this. And so eventually, uh, I guess it. I guess it was mid January. Uh, the State Duma announced that they were just going to shelve this, this bill, uh, which was great, great news. And it was a great victory for the Russian people who made it really clear. I mean, this was honestly one of the most unpopular bills probably in modern Russian history. There are polls done, online polls, with like 1. 1.4 million respondents, where 92% of people said that they didn't want these this national QR code uh, legislation. So... The problem, though, is that QR codes are still widely used in many parts of Russia. And uh, interestingly enough, right after the bill failed, uh, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin, Putin's spokesman, came out and said, "Look, we don't even really need this bill. Like the regions will just take care of you know what they need to take care of, you know." And so the, the way that they're approaching it, in my opinion, and I think there's a lot of evidence for this, is that they'll just get the regions to do what they wanted to do already, which is, you know, uh, normalize the existence and use of QR codes. And we're already seeing this, for example, in Moscow, where QR codes are not widely used. They're starting to, they've announced that they're going to issue QR codes to children who recover from COVID or who get vaccinated. So why would you do that if you're not going to be using QR codes in the future? Why would you give a child a QR code if you only need them for, you know, Almost nothing. So I really don't – I think it's way too soon to celebrate uh, you know, QR codes going away. The most obvious reason being is that they're still, they're still here in Russia, and you know, they can return at a drop of a hat all across the country any, at any time, if, if, they ha- if they haven't already. So uh, another thing that I wanted to say about this, too, is that there's this meme that Putin opposed the QR codes, which is absolutely not true. Putin publicly supported the national QR code legislation, and he said that it was his moral duty as president to support this bill. Of course, he gave some sort of song and dance where he said, "Well, but it should be like done in a way that's not too, uh, you know, doesn't inconvenience Russians too much, and blah blah blah, and it should be, you know, it should be done in the right way." But he fully supported this legislation. So if anyone tells you that this was some sort of 5d chess move by putin they're just lying to you
0: mm. well that does seem to be the argument a lot uh, when people when you know he gets behind uh one of these i guess uh i don't know uh wef approved uh, initiatives right um that oh well he's doing it for a reason x y and z but people also said that in the u.s about trump for a lot of stuff and that wasn't true that was sort of like the um i don't know yeah the i don't i don't I don't know if it was all QAnon people doing it, but it's sort of that, that same fallback of, you know, 5, 5D chess and, and whatever. And obviously, you know, I, I wouldn't put Putin in the same um, category as, as Trump, as a statesman. Uh, he's definitely more um, calculating, <laughs> I think, and, um, you know, obviously a different uh, type of figure. But I think, you know, um, what, what what's problematic, um, I think, is that, you know, before COVID and stuff, it was really... And in cases like uh, Syria or Ukraine, some of these proxy wars to sort of see Russia and and Putin as as the good guys, because you you provably have, you know, uh, the West, the US specifically uh, going in and, and creating all this death and misery. In places like Syria and the Ukraine, by trying to do coups and uh, and, and and things of of that nature. Um, but really, what we've seen over the course of COVID nineteen, and for people that are opposed to the implementation of this digital ID system, this technocratic future, the fourth year industrial fourth industrial revolution, whatever you want to call it, um, in terms of heads of state, there really are no heroes here. I mean, they're all essentially uh, rubber stamping it all over the world. Uh, I mean, there's very few countries where that's not happening. I think maybe, uh, I've seen in, in Brazil, you know, Bolsonaro, uh, maybe it, he, he's been very critical of a lot of this stuff, but you know, um, he's definitely not popular with international media for that, that's for sure. Um, right. And for people listening, this doesn't mean I'm a Bolsonaro fan, right? I'm just pointing out that he's like one of the very few people on the international stage have actually like, pushed back against this agenda um in any in any way and you know i think it's really time to move move past this sort of uh tendency in alternative media to sort of uh ha- create certain heads of states to be heroes and they can do no wrong and they're really fighting for us and they're fighting against the bad guys and all of that stuff i mean uh, I think we have to let go of that and realize that anyone that's um, a head of state, or specifically someone like Putin, who's been a head of state for a very long time, you know, there's a reason they're able to maintain um, uh, those positions for so long. Um, you know, and because there's, as I've talked about, uh, you know, on this podcast a lot, and you know, in my work in general. Uh, the real power brokers of the world are, are transnational, um, you know, and it's about the flow of capital and, and all of this stuff. And, you know, if Putin wasn't playing at least some parts of the game to the liking uh, of these guys, uh, you know, he something would have happened to him a while ago, I think. Um, but, you know, people are welcome to disagree. But um, it, a lot of this, these agendas uh, have advanced considerably, um, you know, in Russia and he hasn't pushed back against them. So. Um, you know, <sighs> uh, well, we'll see yeah, no, what happens. There's,
1: there's so, there's so many, there's so many examples of that too. Just a really quick one on Putin is, um, this is another really, uh, something that you never don't hear about, especially from the, the Sputnik V shills. as I like to call them. The people on the internet always talk about how great Sputnik V is. Uh, so have they
0: gotten it or are they just saying it's great because they're like, this is a, my favorite brand.
1: <laughs> like, i think i think that i think that's it i think that's the reason i think this they think it's like the you know anti-empire shot you know uh, okay
0: they they so, buy the t-shirt yeah but yeah. not take it <laughs> <laughs> okay exactly they got the t-shirt
1: they got the band t-shirt um so you know we you know in the united states how there's huge controversies about uh safety monitoring but at least you have VARES. At least you have VARES in the United States. So VARES is far from perfect, but it's better than nothing. Uh, Russia doesn't have VARES. Russia has zero transparency when it comes to post vaccination complications. The Russian government will not even release this data. In fact, they recently came out and said that uh, disclosing how many people who have died post vaccination. Would it would be inappropriate to disclose this data because it it could harm uh, it could harm what, what was they had a phrase Juan oh it would create a negative attitude towards vaccination
0: oh that's the same <laughs> excuse Patreon gave for uh, censoring yeah. me because of factual reporting that they thought would promote yeah vaccine hesitancy in my audience it's true yeah. but you have to go yeah. and, then, um, and
1: then more recently the more recently the a russian health ministry a state duma deputy so like a russian lawmaker contacts the russian health ministry and says can we please ha- see the most up-to-date uh sputnik v trial data because it's been a really really long time since we've seen any actual physical clinical trial data from you guys the last thing we saw was a, like an interim report which was only six months' worth of data. We would like to see what you have now. And the Russian health ministry says this is classif- this is classified information that's a trade secret, so we can't disclose it. And And so we're talking about literally zero transparency on a coercive. There is compulsory vaccination in Russia, by the way, for those who might think otherwise, there is. So we're talking about zero transparency with a coercive mass medical experiment. And at the same time, Vladimir Putin goes out in front of the cameras and says, Sputnik Five is proven safe and effective. There has not been a single case of serious post-vaccination
0: complications in Russia.
1: Well, that's true because the Russian government doesn't disclose any of this data. So it's, it's Or a, report, them. report them. Yeah.
0: It's so, the same in Chile, where I live.
1: It's really gross, and it's really cynical, and people should— admit that putin is not on their side on this issue like okay i understand people who believe that putin you know as you know has things that are praiseworthy in in the foreign you know foreign policy arena but on covid related issues which by the way are really important we're talking about the preservation of basic human rights and dignity putin has been terrible just absolutely appalling i mean probably not the worst world leader but you know the the bars is, you know, I mean, he's not a Trudeau, but Trudeau's sort of in a league of his own. But he's really bad. He's still really bad. So,
0: I yeah, he know. shouldn't be praised for he it. Be you know, praised. and a lot of, people... and it shouldn't be ignored shouldn't by be people ignored. that claim be to be holding, uh, you know, leaders globally to account. Um, <laughs> it's it's unfortunate. Um, I definitely agree. All right. So there's a lot of um you're very prolific and you write lots of articles. So there's a lot of different things that you, that you touch on Uh, and some of the stuff we um, have, have talked about um, or touched on already. Um, But you have uh, two articles that I found pretty interesting um, that aren't necessarily related so much to the vaccine, but more on this uh, other, you know, the underlying thing here, which has to do with this uh, push to the digital economy um, that's been going on under, uh, you know, uh during the the covid nineteen crisis and all all of that um so one of them is um called the the central bank takeover of russia um and then the other one is why is Russia sending planes full of gold to London yeah which is fascinating yeah um it, also very bad, but you know in the sense of fascinating that um you have a lot of uh people who have very established reputations in alternative media and the independent media, um, you know, sort of what I mentioned earlier, the the likelihood that uh the US will kick Russia off of the Swift uh payment system, which is like SWIFT, for those that don't know, is how banks essentially communicate with each other. Um so it would be sort of uh supposedly taking russia off of the global banking system aha but the a new global banking system is being currently being made by like every country in the whole world so essentially it would be an impetus for russia to as i mentioned earlier uh un unfurl or unveil its its own version of this new global banking system the cbdc digital system but a lot of these people Um, I think you you include a tweet from uh, Pepe Escobar um, saying that, oh, well, when Russia gets disconnected from SWIFT, they'll be making payments uh, in gold and it'll be, you know, the gold standard and all of this stuff. And that um, it's going to be a return to sound money. Sounds like the libertarians dream uh, there. But oddly enough, uh, you point out that even though Russia has been making headlines over the past, uh, I don't know, several years or so, decade, I guess, um, for stockpiling gold, um, now they are sending insane amounts of gold uh, to London, you know, where the city of London is, um, <laughs> supposedly head of the the banking cartel, right? Um, uh, they're sending it over there um, when this economic chaos is on the horizon. And why would they do that if they were going to return to a gold standard system or start demanding payment in gold? Um, you know, it seems like it's not what the central bankers have in mind.
1: Yeah, it's a really, really interesting policy term because for several years, uh, I, I believe that probably the sort of prime years of this, I, sort of 2014 to 2019, Russia, the Russia's, not Russia, but Russia's central bank was stockpiling gold. I mean, buying gold quite aggressively. And uh, they were basically one of the major customers for Russia's domestic gold mining uh enterprises so you know russia is one of the major i think top i want to say top five maybe even top three gold producers in the world and uh they sold a lot of a lot of this gold that was that was mined domestically would be sold to the central bank now when covid came the the virus arrived in russia Uh, Just like everywhere else, there was like this total economic chaos and panic. And according, this this is the theory that I keep reading on the internet, is that basically the Russian government was really short on cash. They needed to prop up various aspects of their economy, and they needed cash, and they needed it quickly. And so they, first of all, they stopped buying gold, and they even sold small amounts of their gold holdings And uh, this was one of the measures they took to combat economic uh, repercussions of lockdowns and other suicidal public health measures. What's interesting, too, is people will argue, well, another reason why they probably didn't stop buying gold is because the price of gold shot up, like, basically in April 2020. And that makes sense. I mean, if you have a whole bunch of gold and the price of gold shoots up, you probably want to start selling it instead of buying it. So that makes that makes sense to me. And also, people will say, well, I mean, the Russia central bank already has a ton of gold, which is true. I think they have top, top three or four reserves in the world. So those are all legitimate reasons to stop buying gold and to even maybe sell some of your gold. So I have no problems with that. The problem comes when you realize that Russia's still producing a whole bunch of gold, mining a whole bunch of gold each year. And what ended up happening was not only were they sending this gold abroad to be sold primarily in, in London which is you know the main sort of uh, precious metals market but Putin later this was pretty recently i believe in back in June so June 2021 signed a law or an order of some sort that allowed Russia's gold miners to sell their gold abroad and they don't have to return the you know the cash that they make the proceeds they don't have to put it into a Russian bank account so they can mine the gold, send it to London and pocket, put, you know, deposit the money in a Swiss bank account. And there you go. And so it's like this sort of, you know, a disappearing act for Russia's gold where a very small group of Russian oligarchs basically get to export all the gold, pocket the winnings and Russia doesn't see a penny of any of it. And so one can obviously see why there's problems with this. Especially especially if you believe that Russia is heading towards this, you know, gold-backed, sound money future, which I don't think is the case. I think we're heading towards a central bank-controlled digital currency future or a spare bank-controlled digital currency future. And so it, it really, it, it's, a, it's a very, very startling U-turn where you had a situation where Russia was aggressively stockpiling gold and now it's aggressively sending its gold abroad to the benefit of a very few people.
0: Right. So what's what's really telling about how, as you said, this is either going to be a, a spur bank or, a, you know, digital currency future or a digital ruble <laughs> uh, future controlled directly by the central bank um, of Russia is that uh, the alternatives, right, to the existing system, which is going to collapse at some point, right, um, is you have uh, the, the gold, right? But now it's a... Uh, Weird stuff is happening with the gold, um, but also you have the banning of of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency take place relatively recently, right?
1: There's a there's an ongoing debate about this. Yeah, the central bank really wants to ban it. Law some lawmakers don't, but yeah, it's it's being they're deciding on these issues as we speak.
0: Right, but the central bank obviously doesn't want it because it would be competition yeah. <laughs> for the central bank digital currency. And, um, you know, it it will obviously be more appealing than a CBDC because it's not centrally controlled by the central bank, um, where it's essentially, you know, the same crap that, you know, as the current system, just a digital, you know, (laughs) so, um, and then I think, um, in one of your uh, articles on this topic, I, I think it's in the central bankers, um, takeover article, um, talking about how they have plans for transaction monitoring um every <laughs> every financial <laughs> transaction um which is pretty telling as well in terms of the whole C- plan for CBDCs or uh spur coin um and things like that and you also have um what was interesting uh going back to Cyber Polygon which as we've mentioned a couple of times was co-hosted uh between Russia and the uh, in the World Economic Forum or rather a Spur Bank subsidiary and had a lot of involvement from uh Russian state leaders is probably the more more accurate way to to put it. Um you have um the deputy governor of the Bank of Russia um speaking at Cyber Polygon and he's talking about uh the plans for the central bank digital currency of Russia, the digital ruble. Um and he's sp- he expressly says um that um Where's the quote? He says this digital ruble uh, will permit better traceability of payments and money flow and also explore the possibility of setting conditions on permitted terms of use of a given unit of currency, Um, which is basically uh, the central bank decides what you can use uh, your money for. Uh, They don't want you to buy, um, you know, they decide that uh, sugar is bad for you. You can't buy uh, sugary foods anymore, you know, as one example, Um, just so it's, you know. Uh, Not that that's exactly what they're going to do. Right. But, um, you know, it gives them that that type of control. Um, You know, uh, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz um, gives some pretty good examples uh, in talking, uh, talking about this, where she says things uh, like, you know, how uh, some of the lockdowns like in Australia, for example, you couldn't go more than five kilometers uh, from your house. In the case of a central bank digital currency, um, if uh, they don't want you to go five kilometers from your house, your money, your central bank digital currency won't work. Uh, at at, lo- uh, at places, points of sale more than five kilometers from your house, right? That's a pretty, uh, I guess, maybe a yeah. more feasible example, maybe for some people. Um, and uh, the head of the Bank of International Settlements, the Central Bank of Central Banks, as it's uh, often referred to, uh, Augustine Carsons, the uh, uh, comically huge head of uh, the Bank of International Settlements, that looks like some of those... Uh, old political cartoons of uh, Wall Street fat cats. He literally is that um, in real life. Yeah, he has a quote that's really similar to what uh, this deputy governor of the Bank of Russia said, but he, you know, he um, cloaks it a little more uh, in in a way that's a little more confusing uh, for, I think, most members of the general public talking about liabilities of the central bank instead of talking about, you know, a unit of currency as as this guy does. But he essentially says the same thing that we can... um, uh set limits on on what type of types of purchases uh people can make um you know and it's all essentially a, a uh controlled system uh you know this is giving uh the state uh or the banks rather um or state banks uh <laughs> a, a lot of power here um in the case of the cpdc uh setup and it's uh wow i mean it's really it's really disconcerting and it's really unfortunate that people are um sort of missing the the point here especially when uh, as you referenced earlier putin gave this speech to the wef being like central banks will uh get us out of this mess um when in fact uh <laughs> one could argue that um central banks have taken great advantage of this mess to uh enslave us all forever um increasingly looks that way um so um one thing i wanted to um ask about this is you know you have the the spur coin future and the digital ruble uh future uh do you think they'll be competing? Uh do you think uh, there'll be a, a fight between the digital ruble and Sparecoin for supremacy uh or they'll exist co- side by side or do you have any expectations? So uh the Sparecoin, I don't
1: know where it is sort of in the development process. By the way, Sparecoin is being developed in partnership with JP Morgan. So that's a fun little that's a little fun little factoid for everyone. That's fighting back uh, against
0: empire for sure. <laughs> um. <laughs> exactly. It's the anti. Yeah. It's the anti empire, big bank,
1: digital currency, the spare coin. That's what Everybody they'll say. Maybe. Yeah,
0: we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: So I don't. You know, with with Graf who he's so ambitious. So who knows? Who kn- maybe a spare coin will never get off the ground. It's possible. But he's mentioned it before. Uh, I think he's going to go for it. I don't know where it is though. Right now, on the sort of. Uh, you know when it's going to be rolled out. That being said, uh, the digital ruble is already being tested. It's already gone live, and my understanding is that they are starting to use it to issue pensions with, which is a really sneaky way of doing it because they're basically yes. forcing old people who are dependent state who are literally forced to use the digital ruble. Uh, you know they're like, all right, you want your pension? Here it is in digital form. The, the idea here is that the central bank wants to basically test to run the digital ruble on pensioners, uh, which is really unfair, obviously, because you're basically coercing people who are dependent on the state to use this digital ruble to feed themselves. Uh, the problem with this plan is that in Russia, I mean, pensioners are not very tech savvy. And a lot of them don't even have, you know, your debit cards. They don't even have those. They still use cash. So how are you going to get these elderly people to start using a digital wallet, you know, on their s- smartphone, which they may or may not even have. So I don't know how, you know, the thing with Russia, there's that famous saying, uh, what is it? Uh, it's like the, the severity of Russian laws is alleviated by the lack of obligation to fulfill them. You know, it, this goes back like hundreds of years where it's like Russia has these crazy laws, but you don't really have to follow them, you know? And so the question for Russia is, is so there's this, uh, you know, it's just you have a situation where they're aggressively pushing these Great Reset Fourth Industrial Revolution agendas in Russia. My my belief is because there's just no real democratic oversight whatsoever. I mean, even the basics that you know we take for granted in many Western states just don't even exist at a basic level in Russia. And so they can just push everything they want right through, and no one's going to do anything about it. At the same time, it's a country where people really are quite suspicious and untrustworthy. Uh, you know, they don't trust the government. And so getting people to uh, go along with these new systems is going to be a challenge, a, a very big challenge. So it's, there's this strange paradox going on in Russia right now where the government is aggressively pushing these really worrying, deeply worrying, sort of civilizational transforming measures. At the same time, Russians, I think, are going to really resist it.
0: Well, as... A lot of what you described is also going to be going on in Chile, uh, where I live in the in the next year or so. Um, so there, the new president that's going to come in, supposedly a progressive um, is how he's been <laughs> portrayed. Um And maybe he used to be that, but I highly doubt that, given uh what he's done uh b- during and, and since the uh election um but essentially the guy that um the head of the central bank under the supposedly right wing uh fascisty, according to the current president or the president who's going to come in he's called the the, the guy who's running the country now, a fascist and all of this stuff, but he took the head of the fascist central bank and put him in his government as the guy who's going to be in charge of how to finance all of his stuff, including pension reform. And this is the guy that uh, developed uh, Chile's uh, uh, launching uh, or, or white paper uh, started that off for their uh, for the central bank digital currency here in Chile. Uh, and they're going to be doing that on pensioners as well. And what I suspect Uh, Based on what we've been talking about um, today, and I think this is going to be the case in Chile as well, is that, you know, how do you get around the fact that old people aren't tech savvy and probably don't have, a lot of them don't have smartphones? Well, what you mentioned earlier with, like, the kids in schools, right, paying for food with your thumbprint, they're going to be doing that for seniors, too. It's going to be buy with your face, buy with your fingerprints, your handprint, um, and whatever. I think that's how they're going to try and get around it and sell it as convenience uh, to uh to older folks um it's um uh, uh at least it's what I, I i anticipate them doing uh because like in chile for example there was a, um the lockdowns here were really excessive and draconian uh, arguably uh some of the m- most draconian in the world at least in the top uh 5 i'd say and um you had to have qr codes to even be allowed to go buy food that you had to generate online um, and there were, there were cases of, you know, there was a, a woman who was a hundred years old or something filmed being, uh, denied access to buy food because she didn't have a smartphone and couldn't get a QR code. And she didn't have like any grandchildren or anything nearby to like help her get one, you know? So she, they were like, yeah, starve to death, um, yeah, old lady, yeah. because, you know, yeah. So that, that has happened here. Um, and I think the way they'll get around that, um, is going to be, uh, biometrics, unfortunately, which plays into this whole, um, plays into this whole thing at the end of, end of the day. Very, um, unfortunate, but it definitely seems like the central bank digital currency from what uh, the people at the Bank of Russia have been saying is, uh, is well on its way uh, to getting established. Whether SpurCoin ends up taking over or not seems, uh, uh, like something to be, (laughs) something to be seen, um. But it's uh um there's some really amazing quotes from this guy, and I didn't get to watch all of Cyberpolygon uh last year, so I, I missed this guy's speech. Um <laughs> and I really shouldn't have. Um I mean he says stuff in here like parents could give the digital currency to their children with certain restrictions such as blocking them from buying junk food. And he's basically like, we can apply that to adults too, but with hundreds of different similar use cases. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just really um, blatant um and unsettling. It's,
1: it's remarkable how, you know, this is, again, this is just another thing they're pulling on us, another fast one that's going to be totally life-changing and there was uh, at least in Russia, there was obviously zero real discussion or debate on it. They just decided, you know, like, oh, we just need to do this. So deal with it. And, uh, you know, there's even there, I'm even starting to read people getting really panicked, like talks about like runs on banks, you know, like we should just get all our money out of the bank. Like these people are crazy. They're going to like make us force us to use this crazy digital currency. I think that people are getting nervous. People are getting nervous.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't plan to use, uh, I mean, I, I know there were people, for example, with like the vaccine mandates who felt like they had to get the, participate in the vaccine passport to continue their lives or feeding their families and stuff like that. But every step you take in the direction of this system, it's h- going to be harder to set up and develop a parallel system at some point in the future. And at a certain point you'll cross the red line where it's impossible. And I think CBDCs are going to be that red line. Um, Once you start to use the CBDC system, you know, uh, because, oh, well, that's how things are going. And how am I going to do this? Um, you know, uh, I understand that, but we, they haven't been rolled out yet. And it's, it's time to prepare now. Um, and the more, you know, we, we allow ourselves to participate, um, in the rollout of this system, uh, it'll just eventually become entirely impossible, uh, to do anything else. And, uh, ugh. Very unsettling here, um, but it's it, it's it looks like in in Russia too, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be like this in, in other countries as well. That the CBDC setup is looking like it's going to be sort of like a public-private partnership, yeah. yeah. In a sense that it's gonna, yeah. it's not just gonna, it's not going to mean the end of commercial banks or anything like that. It's going to be sol- Commercial banks selected to use the digital ruble, you know, they'll be chosen um, and then certain authorized service uh, payment providers will be approved um, to handle it. And everyone that's not won't be, you know, Uh, so it looks it it looks like, you know, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of people that are like, as long as the state's doing it, it's fine. Um, Or it's the public sector and the private banks aren't involved. But here you see it all mixed together and you know that's also true as we mentioned earlier or you mentioned earlier about the sputnik v vaccine you know it has this uh people for some reason think it's just a pie pu- you know an exclusively public sector venture uh when in reality uh you've talked about um you know the kremlin big pharma alliance as you call it yep and how there's a lot of inter cross-pollination uh between between these groups it's uh woohoo uh, Not good. So anyway, uh, what do you think is, is going to happen then in Russia? Huh? Uh, and as far as uh, the rollouts of this stuff, do you think people are, are going to be fighting back like they did against the QR codes or where do you see things going?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely expect resistance, but I really do think that um, at least very large segments of the Russian government are really dead set on the same agenda. That they're pushing everywhere in the world, so Russia's not special guys it's this we've got the same, the same garbage is going on here that's going on everywhere, so um, you know, obviously, I want to stay optimistic, and if I, you know I, if I wasn't at least somewhat hopeful, I wouldn't even bother writing about this stuff. I would just run into the woods and leave you guys to you know figure out things on your own but <laughs> uh, <laughs> no offense but no, uh, no it 's fine that's you know, increasingly becoming I, I, my I political really have, view.
0: <laughs> run into the woods and say, figure it out for yourselves. <laughs> right, right, just run into the woods. Exactly, I got
1: potatoes, forget you guys. You know, I have tremendous faith. I have tremendous faith in the Russian people. Um, Really, like, just incredible, especially in times of crisis. And uh, they're also just a really no bullshit kind of people. And I think especially now that uh, the Russian government Government is basically coming after their kids in a very direct way, both with vaccinations and with tagging policies, you know, buy modes. Um I would hope, I would hope that you know we're going to start seeing some major pushback, and the uh, the defeat of the national QR code bill is is definitely reassuring. But like I said, it's a it's a I think there's a long long road ahead of us, uh, unfortunately. But you know, just gotta stay positive, stay hopeful, <laughs> hope for the best. Yeah. Of this.
0: That's uh that's definitely true. Um, this is probably a a weird anecdote for some people, um, but I have a four year old, and, and and you know I try not to show her too many new kid movies because a lot of them are pretty dumb. Um, so we were watching the the Never Ending Story, <laughs> just from like nineteen eighty four nice. or something, nice I something like one. that. And yeah, yeah, and there's this there's this scene at the end where. Um, the, the little, little boy protagonist, my four year old insisted he was a little girl because of his haircut, um, (laughs) had a big argument about it. Um, Atreyu, right? He's, he's arguing with the, the bad wolf guy. Um, and because there's like, you know, they're in this fantasy land, Fantasia, right? And there's this big storm called the nothing that's destroying everything. And, uh, the the wolf is essentially telling the little boy what the nothing is, and it's um when people when when he you know Fantasia is the manifestation of all well, the hopes and dreams of, of humanity, and and when people stop ho- uh, stop having dreams and hopes, uh, the nothing is all that's left, and it sweeps away this beautiful uh, land that had had been there, right? And he essentially says, you know, when people, um. Stop having hopes and dreams. They become easy to control, and the nothing is uh, essentially the force that seeks to exert control on 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 people, right? And it's actually, you know, I mean, it's like a a kids movie with like cheesy <laughs> special effects, right? But there's something really true there, I think. Um, That, you know, if people uh, give in to the the despair, right, like, like happened to the guy's horse in in the swamp and stuff, you know, Um, when people give in to despair, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's, that's essentially what happens, you become easy to easier to control, you stop. Uh, being, you know, having your sovereignty or, or whatever. And I think that's true. Um, at the community level too, or even the national level, uh, you know, it's, a uh, people sort of communities need to, uh, have their hopes and dreams pretty, pretty clear. Otherwise people are going to impose them, um, Impose their hopes and dreams instead on top of them, and you know uh, the hopes and dreams of people like uh, Klaus Schwab. Uh, you know they've written whole books about them. And it's it's not very uh, nice sounding. Um, definitely not the kind of uh, thing anyone else would hope for. Uh, anyone normal, anyway, would hope for for the future. Um, so it definitely really is important to stay uh, hopeful and and keep you know planning. And and creating and and going on about your life as normal uh, as normally as, as you can because if we you know sort of act like it's they've they've taken it and they've won I mean you know it's uh, it's it's not a good way to to fight back that's for sure and you know you can resist a lot I think by by just keeping that internal environment you know as positive and as as vibrant you know as you can despite all of this uh uh crazy stuff going on. Uh, it gets increasingly crazy. Um so anyway, that's my weird little um night <laughs> uh kid movie inspired anecdote. I fully, fully
1: agree. Fully endorse that message. Yeah, for sure.
0: Fully, fully <laughs> Alright. So um anything else you want to add on what we've talked about so far? I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about Ukraine because I know you've done uh you've been there and done some reporting from there and of course that's in the news and we're talking about about Russia, so um anything else on on the wef uh biometric fourth industrial revolution sputnik um uh, v side of things that you'd uh, uh that we didn't get to cover that you'd like to go over i think we I think
1: we covered mostly everything so guys sputnik v it's the, it's the same scam it's the same scam don't 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 get tricked. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well I really liked your titles on your articles about it. And you're you're like Sputnik V, it's what oligarchs crave. Uh it <laughs> certainly seems uh <laughs> to sort of it fit, is though.
1: It bankers crave bill. it, oligarchs, Klaus Schwab, everybody's craving Sputnik yeah, V. Yeah, everyone's so. clamoring
0: for it. Well not just not just, you know, for Sputnik V, it's it's true for Moderna's newly renamed Spike Vax and Whoa, you know, and some of these other like ones Spike? too.
1: That yeah healthy. well the
0: FDA fully approved it now like they fully approved Pfizer's um, so that's fun anyway um, I have so much to say about Moderna but you know I'll, <laughs> I'll refer people to my, my series uh, about them instead <laughs> like all uh, all 11,000 words of it anyway um, well to wrap up here I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about Ukraine because obviously um, there's been a lot of pumping up of, of the war threat with Ukraine, it looks like they're going to try and start a um, a big proxy war there if they can, uh, similar to what they attempted to do, or, or rather what, you know, uh, we have the Biden administration in the US and it was the Obama administration in with Syria in 2011. Right. So this is sort of, um, I guess, Biden's own, own, own time to to sort of do that. What are your thoughts about it? I mean, I haven't I've only been following it, you know, sort of sort of closely this is my first podcast back from uh, maternity leave right so i was doing a lot of baby stuff not so much <laughs> uh geopolitical war analysis. Uh, following geopolit yeah. right war analysis and all of that up but i think it's you know anytime this type of stuff gets hyped up to the degree it is you know it's for a reason uh so why do you think yeah. this conflict is being hyped up now especially in the west, it's mainly western media that's hyping it up um so why do you see them uh hyping it up and what do you see happening
1: Oh, gosh. I mean, it's such a, it's a, it's a tough one. Obviously, um, just as an observation, I mean, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I, I took two short trips to Donbass in uh, 2015. This was right after, if I remember correctly, the the first Minsk uh, ceasefire agreement was signed. If I remember correctly, first or second. So I want to go with first. Anyway, uh, I've never seen it so. I've never seen it the tension so crazy as I have now. And 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 this stuff you you see flare-ups, you see media flare-ups, and also diplomatic flare-ups that have been happening pretty regularly, you know, for the last six years. You know, so uh, it's I have to admit that I'm concerned just because I've never seen it so bad as it is right now. And Mm -hmm. what adds to the concern is that unlike previous times where there were these media reports of, you know, the sort of phantom Russian army like sneaking back and forth across the border, which, you know, the reality is that there's definitely special forces and irregular Russia linked forces in Donbass, but definitely not like entire battalions of, you know, Russian Russian battalions or whatever they're right. I'm sorry I'm not a military person but you know what I'm talking about so there's not regular Russian army going back and forth between Ukraine and Russia and that hasn't been happening but at this point I mean the the buildup as far as I can tell is is real I mean they're basically moving uh, you know Russian troops that are st- stationed in Russia's eastern district uh, and bringing them over to Belarus for example and. And it's it's scary.
0: And why... Well, it's do- a tit-for-tat thing, too, right? Because the U.S. is moving a bunch of troops over sure. to Eastern Europe sure. as well.
1: and mm-hmm. For sure. And, you know, and by the way, just to make this very clear, I mean, uh, while well, I think that obviously there are games within games, I mean, the reality is that NATO has... Is absolutely been acting as the aggressor against Russia for you know basically since the fall of the Soviet Union, and there's just no Well, way they've I've been, been
0: expanding stop. and breaking that expansion rule exact, like, exactly. every like, year not
1: stop yeah. breaking this expansion yeah. and so uh, the question why has it come to a head now? why now of all times is a really good one I don't even know if I think I, ha- I have a good answer I mean I could guess. I could say that it's a good distraction for everyone involved because you know we basically have mass domestic problems on both sides here. I mean, let's not kid ourselves that in many ways, I mean, uh, a foreign conflict for Russia right now uh, would have its benefits. It just would. It would. It would drum up patriotism in a really big way. It would basically stomp out any sort of domestic grumblings about. QR codes or other COVID-related issues like compulsory vaccination, um, it would undoubtedly have be, be very beneficial in many ways for for the Russian government, and the same obviously can be said of NATO countries and even of in Ukraine, which has its own very serious domestic political economic issues, uh, probably even more so than Russia does. So. Uh, why now? I I don't know. I mean, maybe you have an idea you can throw around with us, but but I could definitely see the I could definitely see why it would be not why it would be appealing, you know, to certain to certain elements of the government.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's what you described how it would be beneficial to the Russian government is certainly true for the U.S. or or the U.K. Right, where you have a lot of um, uh, the the COVID narrative is is crumbling in big ways. The government's been forced to uh walk back some big policies like the OSHA mandate um in the, in the case of Biden uh the mandatory or or the planned mandatory uh vaccination for NHS workers in the UK things like that um and there's a lot of uh <laughs> unhappy people a lot of pushback and with things fa- the narrative falling apart i mean um war is is a very handy way to make those things go away at least in terms of media coverage right you know i was on this podcast uh, with tim dillon um uh i guess a couple of months ago and i said um and i and i still think this is true you know when when things when narratives um that are really important to you know uh the the global elite you know the these types of of groups power factions whatever um start to fall apart historically they they take people to war um i don't really know if they're trying to i don't really think they're trying to go yet <laughs> for some sort of big like nuclear crazy thing between the us and russia but would they try to do you know a big major proxy war yeah i think it's possible yeah um so hopefully that's not the case, but, you know, the more they feel like, it, you know, th- these are technocrats, right? People like Klaus Schwab and Erman Graf and all of that, the more they feel like they're losing control and losing their ability to manage the population. You know, Schwab and Graf see themselves as managers of the global public, right? right. Um, once they feel that slipping uh you know they'll they'll lash out and do something extreme, I think you know whether it's that or their big planned cyber attack uh that the u s has always been ready to to blame on Russia, but hasn't said anything about russia co-hosting the cyber attack simulation with the world economic forum that's fine, you know um oh, it's so nuts, but um, yeah, a lot of different crazy stuff uh is definitely it could definitely happen, and you know that's why it's important to. Uh, be vigilant. Uh, anyway, um, I, I think it's uh, probably close to time to wrap up here. Uh, thanks a lot uh, for your time, Riley. Really appreciate it and going over a lot of uh, issues um, uh, that really have not gotten the coverage uh, they merit. So uh, not only thank you for coming on the podcast, but thank, uh, thank you for uh, your work and, and your articles on this. Um, I would definitely recommend to people to check out uh, your Substack, which, as I mentioned earlier, is edwardslavsquat.substack.com. Is there anywhere else people can follow and support your work?
1: No, that's it. If you want, you can follow me on Twitter, just Riley Wagaman. but... Not not a social media guru, but, uh, yeah, just Edward Slavsquat.
0: Can't blame so you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ryan Christian from The Last American Vagabond was just booted off the second time from Twitter. I uh, keep expecting it because I have a decent amount of followers on there. <laughs> brutal. Uh, but it hasn't happened yet. We'll see how long I will last. Maybe we can uh, all take bets. <laughs> um, but, yeah, all right. Well, this was a really, um, I think, insightful uh, uh, podcast and, and, you know, uh, definitely covered on a lot of uh, issues um, that normally don't get uh, talked about a lot. So for those listening, if you found uh, this episode to be uh, share worthy, please uh, share it around because we are uh, increasingly, uh, just like everyone else in alternative media experiencing, have been for a long time, uh, big tech censorship and all of that stuff. So the more you can help get this info out. Uh, the better. Uh, thank you so much uh, to people who support this podcast and to, and especially those who um, uh, decided to continue supporting while I was on maternity leave. Uh, for those that don't know, I had a little boy on new year's Eve. Uh, he is uh, very cute and chubby and adorable. Uh, I won't say anything more about him, <laughs> Congratulations uh, but that, by the way. thank, great. thank you. Um, <laughs> thanks. But um. I really appreciate the people that uh, helped uh, support uh, Unlimited Hangout uh, during that period of time. Uh, And uh, hopefully you will enjoy this podcast. I guess this is sort of my uh, official announcement that I'm not technically on maternity leave anymore, but will be transitioning back to full-time work over the course of February. Um, But you can expect regular uh, podcasts uh, at the same frequency I was doing before um, from here on out. So with that being said, thanks so much for listening and catch you all in the next episode.